Hey awesome people, a huge welcome to the eighth episode of the second season of Lantern. We're a podcast about young people trying to change the world and trying to understand what that actually means. This fortnight, we're sitting down with Dr. Francesca McLean, who's the co-founder and currently strategic director of 5050, which is a student-led organization dedicated to promoting gender equity in the field of science, technology, engineering, and maths, which is often referred to as STEM. She's also currently a consultant at Arup, which is an independent international firm specializing in consulting on engineering, design, and planning work. The conversation around gender equity that we had is such an important one um, to be having, but also understanding. So we really do hope you can take something out of this episode um, today and apply it um, into your own lives going forward. So really do hope you enjoy this one. My name is Francesca McLean. I am a consultant in the city's economics and planning team at Arab. And what I'm passionate about is equity in all forms, but primarily gender. However, we know that it intersects with everything else. So it kind of is an easy way to cover everything in the world. Where did that passion kind of stem from? Honestly, I think it was a long time coming. I don't think when I was a teenager, I probably wouldn't have called myself a feminist. I obviously believed in equality, but I even remember at uni being one of those people that said, I don't want to be treated differently. I just want to be treated the same. Now a much more informed Francesca is sort of really cognizant of all the different barriers and hurdles that you face, particularly as a woman in engineering and also learning the difference between equity and equality, I think was a really big turning point for me in my journey to being a gender equity advocate. The tipping point for me was in my PhD. And like any PhD student, sort of going through that hard point at about 18 months in, and I started reading about the difference between merit and metrics. And particularly in an academic system, you are mostly evaluated on metrics. How many papers have you published? How many students do you supervise? How many grants do you have? And how much were they? Whereas the things that I loved doing were around community building, teaching, mentoring, really showing that leadership to create a better space around Mm. you. And I realized that that actually wouldn't be valued. Couple that with the experiments that I were doing were 12 hours long. I would like to have a family (laughs) one day. I just didn't see how that was compatible with, I guess, where I wanted to go and who I wanted to be. And so I had to make this really active decision of either I'm going to have to change the way that I behave, what Mm. I prioritize and how I live my life to succeed in academia in the environment that I was in. And I know it's different for a lot of people, but this is a common story for women. And so I just decided that I shouldn't be adapting to a system. A system should really be adapting to people. And until that happens, I would go elsewhere. And Mm. that was really the start of me understanding how gender was such a big influencer Mm. in my experience and how I walked in the world. And it's now something that you, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Just going back to that point before about equity and equality. Yeah, what what were the distinctions? So if you Google it, there's a really great cartoon that shows it. But the really easy way to understand it is equality is giving everyone the same size shoe, whereas equity is giving everyone the shoe size that fits them. So it's acknowledging that not everyone is going to have the same experiences. Mm. Not everyone is going to uh, face the same challenges either. And so we need to design systems and processes and cultures that sort of flex to be really inclusive of that. So then everyone can have that chance to succeed in their own way. And going off that, how important do you think language is when we describe kind of issues that we're trying to tackle? 
language is like the biggest issue yeah, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Even today I was just in a meeting where the language was so masculinized right. and it really made made me feel as though the advice that was given was just not going to mm. ever apply to me mm. or that I could never really do what this person was talking about. I think language is hugely important because it sort of shapes not only our own behavior. So, you know, there's the whole, be careful what you think because your thoughts become your words and your words become your actions. So there's that school of thought, but it's also around the environment that we're creating for people. And I think if we routinely have language that is exclusive of particular groups, that really subscribes to particular stereotypes or cultural norms, Mm. we are inherently creating an exclusive environment. Mm. And that means that people don't feel safe. They don't feel like they belong. They don't feel like they can be their their true and best self Mm. in this environment. So I think we actually limit all of us when we don't have language that is inclusive and cognizant of the issues of the day. And I think inclusive language now is a really different sort of viewpoint than it was maybe 20 years ago. Mm. But what I really like about language is that you are always challenged. There's always new concepts that are are coming up. And I, I just think that's awesome because that means that we're continually changing and continuously learning about new things mm. as well. Mm. So something that I have noticed become a lot more common in recent years, but it's not like it has only just yeah, been around, yeah. is the concept of gender is actually a spectrum. It's not binary. Right. And I think that is really exciting for someone who works in a gender space because it means that the baseline is can't just be the masculine anymore, mm. but it also can't be the feminine. We need to acknowledge that that is a, spe- a spectrum and mm. definitely not binary. How do you think if we're using terms, and especially with say, stereotypes that have become normalised or we've internalised that I guess we as individuals or even within, you know, your workplace or a community um, can catch language that isn't quite inclusive, which might actually be excluding others, offending others. Yeah, well, I think the first step is really just awareness and understanding like what terms may or may not be okay because for example I only came across this because things started to sound a little bit awkward to me so last year I was finishing up my PhD and handing over the executive directorship of my organization to other students and they were undergrads and when I would talk about my organization and the people in it to external parties I kind of always referred to them as girls and it started to sound really weird to me because I'm like well these aren't girls they seem so much younger than me only by a couple of years but you know if we're talking about girls that's under 16 these are Mm. actually women and that was my mission last year was to stop using the word girls to describe women and because when I thought about it a lot more it was around the fact that when we call women girls we take away any power or authority that they Mm. might have in a situation Mm. but we call lots of men boys right Mm. but in that sort of culture where it's around the footballers and it's like oh you know Mm. the boys were out on the town or something and when we talk about that and we see that in the media all the time when we call men boys it actually takes any responsibility that they need to have around the action so it's just those slight you know this it's so unconscious but Mm. all of this subtle messaging really changes how we perceive and interact with other people yeah so it was just that having that sort of moment that mm. things clicked for me that I then like went on my journey. But now I get a little bit crazy when right. other people <laughs> use these words. Yeah. And, and I've sort of become a little bit, you know, at work I've run inclusive language workshops, so I'm kind of known as that person. Right, right. But I'm just 
gobsmacked by the number of people that still, number of women mm. as well, who are still calling other women girls. Right. So I have a few tactics that I use because I think when you're trying to foster a more inclusive environment, you want to bring people on a journey. You don't want to say, that's terrible, therefore you're a terrible person, mm. just stop speaking. Mm. You want to be like, okay, you know, actually let's break down why this language might not be creating the environment that we want and explain to them. And I always explain my journey with the whole women and girls thing. Same right. with guys. When I was teaching at ANU, I really stopped using that. I felt as though I was creating a particular environment that I didn't want my students using that and so yeah so it is around having those conversations about why this language may or may not be inclusive what are the alternatives and Mm. actually just sometimes you have to call people out either in the moment or you know in a quiet moment after the fact and it also depends on what you feel comfortable with and practicing but now I just I have no shame I call it out all the time With kind of social situations where you might hear certain phrases being used, a certain language, you mentioned that, yeah, you should just call it out. That's kind of what you've become Mm -hmm. accustomed to. If the people around you are brushing that off or not taking it seriously or you think you're hitting a brick wall, do you think it's worth pushing forward? Yeah, Yeah, definitely. And and I think that's a, a huge challenge is what we see is that, you know, we might think that we make a lot of advancements in the workplace, particularly mm. when it comes to gender equity. But, you know, Elizabeth Broderick said once that we won't get gender equality in the workplace until we have it in the home. And it's almost like the home is the last frontier. Mm. You know, if you actually interrogate all of the gender norms, the, you know, allocations of roles, the different amounts of pocket money that boys and girls get, like it's just so ingrained mm. in our culture. So I do understand that there is a massive social cost for some people. I guess there are a few points around this is one, if this is a core value to you, it kind of is non-negotiable, right? Mm. And if you're in environments that are making you, I guess, give up that value or put it on hold, I would probably question that Mm. environment on, I guess, a much larger frame of mind. But yeah, in terms of, I guess, being isolated, that's why I always make sure that I've got allies right. somewhere. But there's always one person that yeah. you can turn. <laughs> but tapping into their why, their purpose, their values is really important. And that's actually something that I've learned in the, so I'm in the Joan Kerner Emerging Leaders Program, and we had a session on exploring values. And I thought it was really interesting because a lot of the time we try to tap into if someone's motivated, say, by money, we try and make the, the financial case for it. But how our values work is that if we do that, we actually deactivate the sort of the altruistic values that we want to see and I guess those those community-minded values. Mm. So that's actually not really the best way. Mm. The best way is to still try and tap into those community, maybe family-focused values as well. You just might not be doing it in a way that works for you, but mm. you've got to do it in a way that works for someone else. Mm. So instead of meeting people where they're at, you mm. meet them where you want to meet them mm. because they're there in some way. They're just mm. there in their own way. So I think that's a tactic that I sort of am starting to use. And mm. I mean, the easiest example is like senior men with daughters, right? Because then they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally support women. Like yeah. I'm a feminist. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, and it's a much longer road. Right. But yeah, I think 
putting all of those tactics together, mm. you will get somewhere. You might not get as far as you want to go as quickly as you want to go, mm. but I think it's still progress. And in terms of, yeah, that social cost and that isolation, what I would then say is, you know, there's the Emma Watson quote of, if not you, then who? And if not now, then when? Right. So it's sort of like someone's got to be that brave person. And I think that we all maybe need to be a little bit braver mm. in our everyday mm. lives. I have that, you know, with my family, I have some robust conversations yeah. about our language, particularly now that we've got little kids running around. And right. I think it's really important and it's and it's a key value of mine, so I'm never going to let that go. My approach might change depending mm. on who I'm with and the impact that I'm trying to have, but at the end of the day, it's non-negotiable. I was just thinking with another situation that's come up at uni is often when you're surrounded by other men as well, is this notion of you know there being a lot of opportunities for women women's scholarships women's internships and i think often men who might not even be of merit to get those on their own accord mm. default to being like oh if only i was a girl like yeah. it'd be okay yeah, I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that. It's actually a really important issue that I don't think we've created a good enough conversation around. And what I actually find, you know, from my own personal experience is that we might have these sorts of scholarships. In the scheme of things, they actually almost have a very little impact because unless you've also got tactics and strategies that are changing the culture, changing the opportunities to career advancement, mm. those sorts of things, these scholarships, they're... They're helpful in that year, and I understand financial assistance is really important for students. Yeah, they actually don't have as much of an mm. impact as I, I guess these young men might think that mm. they do. And in terms of, I guess, the unfair perception of it, I think what we need to be doing is actually questioning privilege a lot more. And so what I was having this conversation just yesterday with someone, because we see it the same in the workplace. If companies have targets around proportional promotions in grades, um, it's also a thing. It's like, oh, I can't get promoted because right. there aren't enough women or something. Yeah. Well, that's just not the case. What I did say to this person, as I said, well, think about you know your pathway to get where you are. How hard was it? Or did you even have to think about it? Mm. Or the possibility of it happening? Or was it just a given? Mm. If you don't mm. have to think about it, that's privilege. Mm. And we see that in any domain, right? Whether mm. it's gender, sexuality, race, all of those things. Mm. If you don't have to think about it, that is a privilege. And I think that if you are willing to actually question your privilege, appreciate it, but then use it for the better, that's where we need to get. I don't see many young men who are complaining about, you know, scholarships, mm. thinking about their experience in their maths or physics mm. class in year 11 or year 12. They were probably in the majority, right? They probably had teaching styles and, and examples that more suited their socialisation mm. than women. So, I, yeah, I always sort of say think about your pathway and then think about a woman's mm. and where... Uh, she may have faced some additional challenges or barriers along mm. the way. And I think that's why I'm really open to talking about my experience because I think that maybe we don't have enough storytelling around this mm. because a lot of the time women have to, we have to survive, right? Mm. Like it's 
quite hard for women, particularly in engineering, to thrive. Like mm. you've just got to get through it. But I still remember like not asking questions in tutorials because I was the only woman and I didn't want to, you know, shame my whole gender and feel mm. uncomfortable if I was wrong. I remember, you know, no one in my tutorial making eye contact with me or talking to me. And this is my first year and I mm. had moved from Darwin to Canberra and I knew no one. Mm. So how is I supposed to access those informal networks? And that sort of just continues throughout your whole experience. So I was lucky enough that I was at uni doing engineering. Right. And in Australia, we've got 16% women doing engineering and then when we move to industry there's 12 percent women who are professional engineers so it just gets harder and harder and that we don't have that opportunity to necessarily thrive as equally as a lot of the men do at the same time i think we also have a lot of gender stereotypes norms and expectations on young men that are quite damaging and if we look mm. at the you know mental health in mm. young men it's a huge issue that we're really not dealing with mm. and i think this is why i always talk about gender equity you know it's not just women mm. you know men have a gender they just mm. don't think they do sometimes right. yeah. <laughs> or is never reminded you know at every age and stage mm. of their life so i think the stereotypes and the binds that we create for women there are complementary ones that we create for men as well when we're always thinking in this binary so mm. yeah it's a i think we sort of went off topic <laughs> <laughs> no, that's all right. it's a massive complex yeah. system um but it all comes back to questioning your privilege yeah, yeah. and actually just being a little bit more i guess understanding of yeah, I guess your experience, but also merit as well. Mm -hmm. I think that's been a big challenge. Like, I think anything that's gendered has become a scapegoat. But actually, well, you know, would you actually deserve a scholarship? Mm -hmm. um, that's that's a much harder question to face mm -hmm. than, oh, I'm a dude, so I didn't get it. With the question of privilege, I found that it kind of in my personal experience, it's often when I'm confronted with a story or a person or individual who's gone through something that I haven't and you know they're communicating to me one on one or in a presentation or something like that but like more so than in like video or I guess audio visual form mm -hmm. you're, that you're connecting <laughs> with that person it really kind of checks your privilege and makes you understand how lucky you've been do you think there's other ways that we can go about that yeah i mean i think storytelling is invaluable i'm obviously a big fan of it it's a lot of what i do but at the same time there is sort of this concept of just assumed and the burden of emotional labour from people who are from minoritised groups having to then not only just try and do their own job or, you know, just study and, and survive and, mm, and maybe try to mm, thrive, mm. but then they've also got to enlighten everyone mm. else who wasn't on their journey. And we've had this conversation in the Joan Kernan program and I've just sort of been like the number of men who ask me to break down gender equity because right. they don't really see it mm. is just phenomenal. But I have decided that I have mostly the time and energy to do that. I've right. also developed a really strong vocabulary, strategies of, of telling that story. Mm. And it's essentially persuading and influencing mm. people. I'm okay to do that because again, it's a core value of mine and it's pretty much my purpose. I am going to change this. However, if you talk to other women in engineering, we still assume that they're gender experts as well and they can break down the mm. whole complex system, mm. which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. You know, It's super time consuming. Mm. And I think that actually... When we expect that from groups who have been minoritized by systems, it sort of, I think it's quite an ignorant way to go about it. Mm. I think if they're more than willing to have those conversations with you, then that's great. But I think we need to start with educating ourselves around it. You know, there is so much information that you can access now. Like, it's just amazing. Mm. You know, if you think about years ago when we didn't have 
internet and Google, like mm. it was a completely different world, but we live in such a connected age. Get on the internet, start mm. searching things, read some books, listen to some podcasts. I think that's been a great way for me to sort of expand my horizons because your environment is limited by, you know, your surroundings. I you know, have ended up in very privileged environments. So I have actively gone out and to seek, I guess, learning experiences Mm. elsewhere where it doesn't necessarily place the emotional labor burden on Mm. someone. So there's a great book, Can We All Be Feminists? And it's sort of um, 17 essays from intersectional writers about concepts of feminism and race, sexuality, religion, Mm. body image, all those sorts of things. And that's been great exposure. Mm. But in saying that, when you are going looking for these things, you have to have a really open mind as well. Because if you go in sort of trying to have an argument and (laughs) find find ways that it's like, oh, actually, no, you know, that's not... That's not really the point. So mm. I think you do have to get to a particular stage where you're reflective enough and have a growth mindset to, mm. re- and also to be challenged as well. Mm. And I think I've definitely been challenged in terms of I obviously have a lot of white privilege. I am very lucky that my parents are teachers. Education was always a given to me. There was just no argument about whether mm. I would or wouldn't be going to uni. Then the fact that I've gone on do- to do a PhD, that's even put me in another area Mm. of privilege as well and that I've had access to these sorts of environments Um, and now that I work at Arab again like it sort of builds on itself and so I think um, being really aware of that and then knowing what I can do about that Mm. as well to help other people who might not have had the same access mm. to these sorts of circles is really important. You mentioned 50-50. We kind yeah. of skimmed over it. Yeah. Um, do you want to tell us more about that and how that came about? Sure. So I guess 50-50 sort of came about with the fact that, I guess with that realisation around metrics versus merit, that this environment's just a little bit shit for women, right, right. I realised that I didn't have... I think in total at that time I had three women who were academics in my college, which was a bit rubbish in Mm. terms of access to mentors and role models. It was quite limiting and I sort of realised that that was not really going to change for me, but the Mm. power that I did have to change was for the experience of Mm. the undergrads coming after me. And so I met my co-founder, Emily Campbell, through, I was on the uh, sort of the diversity and inclusion working group, and we sort of decided to start 50-50 together. And I thought that was great because Emily had the connections into the undergrad space, um, but we were both really passionate about gender equity. And so 50-50 is a student-led organisation based at the Australian National University, and our vision is of an inclusive and equitable STEM pipeline from university to industry or academia regardless of gender. So we sort of, when we were looking at what we wanted to do, mentoring was sort of a natural choice to create not only those vertical networks between cohorts, but those lateral peer networks. Mm. Funnily enough, we actually did investigate doing outreach activities because I think that's the go-to for anyone working in STEM. But we realised that the way that we wanted to do outreach activities wasn't going to work with, I guess, the resources that we had. To do outreach really well, you want it to be a really consistent approach. You want to be in the school every week and it'd be the same person that the students are interacting with. So you really form that relationship and that. I guess it's high value experiences. As you know, it's very hard to get a student to turn up to the same thing for, you know, 10 to 12 weeks and be able to have that fit in with your academic commitments, you know, any work commitments Mm. that you might have. So that's why we really scoped it to the university experience and then that transition to industry. Because when I was in my 
fourth year of five, I didn't apply for any grad jobs right. or anything. I was like, oh, just keep doing some research. That was yeah. what my undergrad degree was. And then when it got to my last year, I still didn't apply for any grad jobs because I'm like, I don't know what engineers yeah. do, which is a bit <laughs> scary given that I did four years. <laughs> yeah. But what I did know was research. Right. So I And I loved it at the time, so I continued to that. And that sort of is really key in terms of the importance of visibility. And so is that there's the saying that you can't be what you can't see, mm. even though for a long time women have had to be what they can't see. That's why we get the firsts in everything. Mm. But largely so, I think it is so much harder when you don't see that path. You don't see how someone like you could get where that person is going. And so that's why we've had a really strong focus on connecting students with industry partners, but particularly industry partners that align with our values of gender equity as well. Mm. So we've sort of gone from, I guess, career development programs to engage a broader range of students. We've expanded from engineering to all of STEM at ANU. Mm. Still provide the mentoring program and a lot more uh, activities where our students can get exposure to our industry partners on site as Mm. well. What was the process around building a club or initiative out of scratch? Yeah, it was definitely learning on the fly. Best piece of advice that I got was from the Dean of Engineering, Eleanor Huntington. She's still there. It was around the importance of sustainability. And she said, I want 50-50 to still be here in 10 years' time Mm. when Mm. you're not. Mm. And that really drilled into me that this is bigger than me. And I think that's sort of that service leadership model is that you do this for others, not for yourself. And so in terms of having that focus on sustainability, that then informed we would always have 18-month succession planning. And so we've got a really good model now of that the exec directors from this year and then the two that are next year joined us in first year and have continued Mm. from team member to director to shadowing to being an exec director. Mm. And that's really what we wanted. We wanted that talent pipeline coming through because I would say the, the reason why some of some associations may not be as effective as they'd mm. like to be or you see so much variance between years is that mm. you're nominating or electing a president who wasn't in the committee as a committee member they've come in fresh which I think in terms of you know diversity of thought is great but in terms of you know any organization any club or society is going to have that really important organizational knowledge of systems processes culture buying into the vision and I think it's really important that they get that experience Mm. of sort of moving up and growing and then being able to see their growth in the organisation pact and activities as well. So I think the succession planning and sustainability was huge. We were quite focused on the structure. I would say after maybe a couple months, we had a really clear structure. So we work on a portfolio basis. And then within each of the portfolios, you've got a director and then you've got your team under that. So that would be organised, I guess, based on the uh, activities or events that you were running for that year. Another unique factor of 50-50 is that we have co-exec directors right. um, because I don't think as a, you know, if it was your full-time job, yeah, okay, you yeah. could probably yeah. do it yourself. Yeah. But being in a club or society, number mm. one priority is university, yeah. is yeah. your degree, and it's so much better when you've got someone else that you can work with. Yeah. I also think that that way that you get to not only learn how to collaborate effectively, but also you get exposed to different styles. And I would say my co-founder and I are completely different people, styles, but we complement each other really mm. well. So I think mm. I was really lucky to found M, who 
wasn't another Francesca. She was M in her own right, and and we like we got shit done because we sort of worked so well together. Mm, mm. Um, I guess the a really important lesson that I learned in founding Fifty Fifty was kind of tied to being brave, and it was around asking for money, because I guess what's really common for a lot of women is you're socialised not to talk about money mm. like ever. And I remember I was talking to an industry partner and I was putting together a sponsorship package and this was the first time we were asking for it. And I think, like, my top level was $750. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, we've never done that because from other organisations, that's what they had because right. we had people from, from different societies come through. And then I sort of clicked and I said, you know, if I'm uncomfortable about asking for this money, mm. it's purely based on my own sort of feelings and, and you know, essentially mm. how I've been socialised, mm. but it impacts so many more people than me. And I, that's what really clicked in my head is that I do this so my team can do better. I might feel uncomfortable in the moment, but mm. it's going to mean that we can run really good programs. Mm. And so I thought the biggest, scariest thing I could do was up it to $1,000. Mm. Um, and then it got okay. And I was right. like, oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> <Let's go high>. <laughs> next time. <laughs> but that, you know, and now like, I laugh about that now, particularly working, you know, in, in the corporate world. I'm yeah. like, $1,000 is nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that was such a huge leap for me right. at the time. And, and ever since then, I always had the attitude of like, I don't care how much it costs. Come to me with good ideas. My job is to go find you the money. And I will go out there and I will sell whatever we need to so that we can actually do good stuff and have an impact. And unfortunately, when you're a student organization, money is a big part of it. Mm. Because we also have all of our events for free. We don't have membership because financial access and inclusion is really important to us. So, yeah, but that's a Biggest lesson I learned, and then now, you know, any of the younger people in the community, they all know what I earn, how much I earned when I first joined, because I think having that really honest conversation about money is really important, particularly for young people. If you don't have visibility over it, you can have no idea. In working with organisations and corporates, how do you kind of work out whether a company is actually serious about the kind of initiatives that they're talking about? I think you do have to have a bit of a critical lens and and have a look at not just the marketing but one step deeper. So, for example, if we're talking about gender equity, what I would then do as a student is I would go to the Workplace Gender Equality Agency and look up that organisation's report and then you can get the pure numbers of where they're sitting at. And a lot of the organisations that you think are great, you're like, ah cool like no women in leadership that's great and so you know if there are any sort of reporting that they have to do there's the AWEI which is around sexuality and equality so it some some of this is voluntary some of it is compulsory but if there's any sort of reporting that's publicly available I think that's really important Mm. then there's that step of get out of the stream of recruitment and go laterally into the people who are working there now Mm. and not necessarily the people who you know you're applying to be in their team for because some people are quite honest, some people are mm. not. I think being able to get cross section of views as well. And I think it's hard, right? Because as a student, you're, and particularly even more so now, I think that our society has changed a lot and the generations have changed a lot mm. in terms of that importance of values alignment and focus on social impact, you know, environmental impacts, mm. sort of diversity and inclusion that, you know, sometimes the companies are not going to be where you want them to be and you sort of have to weigh up 
how far they stray from where you'd like them to Mm. be and whether that's something that you can deal with. I thought going from academia to industry would be so much better. Don't know why I thought like (laughs) that. I actually had no evidence to base that on. I just thought at the time nothing could be worse than academia. (laughs) Turns out different problems, right? right? Different systems, different people, different cultures. Mm. Can you see yourself growing? And I think that's the biggest thing, that regardless of their public face versus what happens on the Mm. inside, if Mm. it's not an environment where you don't think you can grow, don't even bother. But yeah, I do think it is really hard. And I think what's also really important is if you get somewhere and it's not what you thought it would be, you don't have to stay. Right? You mm. never have to stay. So, yeah, so it's just, unfortunately, I don't know if there's like a silver bullet. Yeah, that. <laughs> yeah that's the beauty of corporations. Yeah. I was interested in talking about the stuff you do on the side in terms of workshops and yep. speaking. You seem to kind of be building a personal brand almost. I was just, yeah, wondering, do you think that's important to do? I think I sort of did the personal brand just because I was sort of catching up with things that had happened. So I didn't really have any profile until I won Young ACT Woman of the Year last year. And that was sort of like I was just thrown into media and some speaking engagements and it was actually really scary at right. the time. And so then I was in the Superstars of STEM program which really focused on media and comms training and I got a few speaking engagements that really boosted my confidence. And I was like, wait, this is something I like doing, something I can get paid for. And it's something that makes the world a better place. So, and it purely comes from, I guess, some individual awards and recognition, which is why I created that personal brand. In saying that, I found myself most effective when I was advocating or presenting on behalf of 50-50 because I had carefully worked with my team around crafting our vision our purpose, our mission and our activities around that. Mm. And that's something that people wanted to hear over and over again. I guess I'm a strategic director for 5050 now and particularly since I've moved to Melbourne, I'm not as connected to the organisation in the same way. Mm. And also, you know, if I talk about in Melbourne, no one's really going (laughs) to want to fund something in Canberra, right? I've sort of definitely shifted to that personal brand. Mm. And also, I guess I've become comfortable with that Mm. as well. I know some people don't really like to be out there selling themselves which is why if you're friends with me I can do that for you (laughs) uh, whether you like it or not but yeah I think it's really around what suits your style but also what are you trying to achieve right and I guess another thing is that a personal brand works really well for me because I talk about my experience as a woman in Mm. STEM because I have that direct link to Mm. myself I obviously always connect it to best practice and evidence-based work but it doesn't make sense for it to be a personal brand if not maybe actually an organizational brand would be more effective as well this year if I'm honest I've sort of felt a little bit lost without my organizational connection right. to 50 50 because then it's like if I have these ideas or if I have these connections I don't have anywhere to funnel it because it's so it's just me now so yeah. I've got to sort of <laughs> figure out what I'm doing that's why I was really keen to be in the Joan Kerner program to have that supportive network as well Mm. but almost to carve out that time and space for me to figure out what's next now that 50 50 is sort of up and running fourth generation of execs going through Mm. it's sort of doing what it needs to do Mm. what's my next step and I think that's a challenge if you've got your personal brand is that it's only you but then that's also the beauty of it that you can do anything you want in terms of stepping away from 50 50 how do you go about kind of ensuring that the passion and kind of drive that you had in your co-founder when you started it up Mm. still was flowing through the organisation. 
Oh, yes. No, definitely had that issue. And particularly because when I transitioned out, it was because I was coming up to, I think I had two or three months left of my PhD and it got to a point where I'm like, I cannot do 20 hours on 50-50 and 40 plus hours on my PhD. Like I need to just finish it. So what was really interesting when I sort of let go, I said, look, I'm going to take two weeks off. Here's a list of all the things that are on my radar. When I came back, they said, oh, you can stay off. We don't need you. And that was so hard for me. And I think we all sort of learned a bit of a lesson in in managing people's emotions Mm. and reacting as well Mm. in terms of that. I just don't think I ever contemplated what it would be like to not be in control. You know, I had this whole succession plan, you know, Mm. I had been mentoring the execs coming through for six months, like, but then just that whole letting go. And as a founder, it's so hard because even now I still have ideas of what we should be doing, but I'm just like, nope. Not the point. <laughs> because, and, and I just had this conversation with Em the other day. It's like, oh, well, we've got this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but maybe 50-50 isn't the right vehicle for it because 50-50 is someone else's vehicle mm. now and they need to run with it and figure out how they want to take it there. So I would say, what's that, like almost two years on and I'm still struggling with letting <laughs> go. I think I know other founders who've had more of like a longer transition period as well. Mm. And mine was a very much, it was almost a forced transition right. because of my other circumstances. If I could do it again, I would probably make it a lot longer and a little bit more structured. I mean, now we have, we were having sort of fortnightly catch-ups with the exec, part mentoring, part strategic. Now we've moved to quarterly strategic meetings, and I think that's been a really good transition as well. But, you know, it is always, always tricky. (laughs) Do you think you will ever go back to academia from my perspective and you know i do have to say that i have a very you know my opinions come from my personal experience Mm. it's probably to say it wasn't the best experience so it is there is obviously that inherent bias in that but overall i think there are a lot of things that need to be fixed in academia they're both cultural and i guess systems focused as well and so we see the SAGE pilot, you know, I think the first cohort have just gotten their bronze accreditation. So there are sort of moves in the right direction, whether they stay there. And I think there's still so much more work to do right. because not only do you have the aspects of, I guess, the students coming in, you've then got the makeup of the undergrads there. Look at all of the sexual assault and harassment stuff that goes on in campuses, mm. in colleges as well. Then you've got the issues that PhD students face, particularly around mental health and bullying. Then there's the whole academic progression, the workload expectations, and mm. it's just so many things yeah. to fix. So yeah. I think personally for me, I don't think I'll go back. I do miss the, I guess, the intellectual curiosity that was just the norm, you know, whereas now in a commercial environment, it's about delivery, smart commercial decisions. And Mm. I've learnt so much over Mm. the past couple of years, but I do miss that focus on learning and learning at your own pace as Mm. fast or as slow as you like. But I think that there are probably other areas that I can have more impact in for both myself and others and academia knows what I think of it now I haven't <laughs> I'm always quite honest about that and so I think if there are other people who are willing to stay in the system and fix it from within that's fine I just didn't want to be making that sacrifice at 25. I guess this is a question that we ask everyone. First of all, is there anything else you'd like to add? And then also, are there any books or films that you'd recommend 
for young people wanting to make a difference. I think in terms of, I guess, if we're talking about inclusion in any sort of sense, I guess the phrase that I like to leave people with is that if you're not consciously including, you're unconsciously excluding. And I think that's been so helpful for me in terms of how I go about my work, my personal life, everything, and just being a better human. In terms of resources, yep, so there's all the gender stuff and the podcast like Guilty Feminist, the books like Wife Drought, Stop Fixing Women, all those sorts of things. Then just in general, I think a book that I, I'm terrible, I buy like 10 books and yeah. start <laughs> them all me. at once and my partner keeps telling me to stop buying books but I'm just like, it's not the point. <laughs> a book that I have started and am slowly getting through is Originals by Adam right. Grant yeah. and I think in terms of, I guess, social impact and founding organizations, I think that would be a great resource mm. for your listeners but Adam Grant full stop has some, some great, I think he's written Give and Take as well. Option B with Cheryl Sandberg, all those sorts of things. But yeah, yeah, Originals is one of those books that I'm like, yes, this yeah. is what I love. Yeah, awesome. Cool. Thanks so much, Francesca. Awesome. Thank Appreciate you for having it. me. No worries. Okay.